Our text this morning will come from the 28th chapter of Genesis. And I will begin reading in verse 10 through the end of the chapter. Genesis 28, 10 through 22. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie... I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then... Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He, came, he called the name of the place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Almighty God, we thank you for your word this morning. And we pray now that your Holy Spirit might illuminate our hearts and minds, that we might glean from this word what you would have us know. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. A few years ago, I headed southwest out of Billings, Montana on a clear day, nothing but blue skies ahead of me, except off in the distance there were storm clouds building. But as I drew closer, I realized those weren't storm clouds. I'd never been to the Rocky Mountains. They were in fact the silhouette of the Rocky Mountains. From 60 miles away, I was seeing the outline of the Rocky Mountains. I just couldn't believe it. But that was only the beginning of the excitement and sensory overload I would experience on that journey. My mind and my emotions simply were not prepared for the grandeur of what I saw at Yellowstone. And not only what I saw, but the words of Scripture that echoed back to me from my past sporadic church attendance. The words echoed back to me, though. I saw sights that I just could not imagine were possible. If you haven't been there, I apologize. You, you, you just can't take in 
what it was I saw. Just the sheer size and scope of the mountains themselves surprised me. I was overwhelmed by what I saw, what I felt, trying to take in this spectacular scenery that dotted every single inch of the landscape in all directions. And once I got into the park, as I stood at the edge of the Grand Canyon of the Yellowstone, Yellowstone I stood in silent awe just how big it was, how deep it was, how wide it was, just how maj majestic this place was. Standing just a few feet from the edge, trying to peer over. My knees trembled as I stood near the edge, I promise you. It's a sensation of awe and terror all at the same time. And it is etched into my memory. This happened in the 1980s. And I'm sure that everyone in this room has had experiences in your life that have impacted you deeply, and you can still remember them so well. A time when you were overwhelmed with excitement, with your heart pounding, and a certain sense of wonder and amazement that you were the one put in that situation and was able to experience such an event. Now, at that time in my life, I didn't attend church. I had attended some as a child and had only been exposed to the scripture. But that trip, that trip changed me in some ways. It caused me to reflect on what I was seeing. It wasn't the experience I was seeking, I promise you, when I headed out there. I didn't expect to be blown away by what I saw or impacted so much. Now, I won't tell you that I came to Christ in the mountains. That'd be a stretch. In fact, it took many years after that journey before I finally gave in to Christ. But that journey is a part of my past. It's a part of my story, and I'm convinced that God used that event as he prepared this unknowing heart. Everyone in this room is on a journey, a journey of faith. And some are well-planned, and others of us like I tend to do, choose to fly by the seat of their pants. Either way, it's ultimately not our plan that's being fulfilled. It's God's plan. And he has seen fit to include us in the plan. He's chosen to work through our lives, our experiences, and our journeys to move his plan forward. When we realize that, we'll understand that God always acts in accordance with his covenant promises his plan, and that as his people, that is the reality we need to live in. Our lives are indeed a journey of faith, and it is not always an easy journey. We will experience a wide range of emotions and physical experiences while we're on this journey, and hopefully each of those experiences we learn something from. We learn something about ourselves, but more importantly, we learn something about God. We might even learn what it means to properly fear the Lord. Let's consider the reason for Jacob's journey, and it'll help us to understand that God does always act in accordance with his promises. In verse 10, we're told he left Beersheba and went towards Haran. Now, that statement alone seems pretty harmless, right? But. 
Jacob's going the wrong direction. Jacob is leaving Canaan, the promised land. He is, we'll see, being exiled, if you will, from the promised land. Remember that Abraham's family was originally from Ur, and Abraham's father set out to move the family to Canaan. But on the way to Canaan, he decides to settle in Haran. It was only later that God calls Abraham out of Haran into Canaan. And God makes Abraham a promise during this, this time, a significant promise that gets fleshed out in the pages of Scripture. Jacob's going to play a role, a major role in that plan. So God begins to fulfill this promise to Abraham and Sarah and gives them a son whom they name Isaac, a son to whom the covenant promise would also belong to. Isaac has children with his wife, Rebekah, who, like Sarah, was barren. Once again, God intervened to give them a child in order that his plan would be fulfilled. In fact, God gave them twins. We know them as Jacob and Esau. And which one was born first? Esau. And as Esau is born, here's Jacob holding on to his heel. No, me first. Me first. Sometimes he's referred to as Jacob the deceiver. As they grew, Isaac favored Esau, which was very traditional in that culture, the oldest son. But God had told Rebekah that the older would serve the younger. And as Isaac's life was coming to an end, Jacob and his mother deceive Isaac into giving the blessing to Jacob instead of Esau whom Isaac intended to bless. Now Jacob receives the blessing and the promises that had been passed from Abraham to Isaac and now through deception to Jacob. Esau learns of the treachery and he vows to kill Jacob. Rebekah overhears Esau and intervenes. And she sends Jacob away under the guise of finding a wife who is not a Canaanite. And she convinces Isaac that this is a good plan. So Isaac once again blesses Jacob and sends him away to find a wife. Away, or, or to find a wife from his mother's family back in Haran. So that is where the journey, as found in verse 10, begins. So we see that Jacob has obtained his father's blessing. Everything he had sought. All that he had deceived his father and brother to obtain was now his. He possessed it. And now, because of his treachery, he has to flee for his life. He has to flee from everything that he just was awarded because of his deception. And in verse 11, we find him alone with his thoughts on this journey, a journey away from the promised land. Nightfall comes, and he stops for the night. And the Bible says he stopped at a certain place. And he finds a stone for his head. A lone fugitive on the run, fleeing for his life in a strange and unknown place. And it's dark. The sun no longer lights the sky. He lays down to sleep. And all he has to bring him any comfort is that stone under his head. In 2012... There was a 
a news article, and the headline reported that humanity no longer needed God. But may, with the help of artificial intelligence, develop a new form of collective consciousness. The author of that statement was Dan Brown. Some of you might recognize that name. He's a well-known American author. I think he's American. Um, published books like The Da Vinci Code and whatnot, things of, of that ilk. And Brown's question or premise was, can God survive science? Brown was essentially saying that men felt like we no longer needed God. We have the ability within ourselves to affect the kind of change and progress best suited for our individual needs. Seems like Brown's idea was really not that new. Jacob seemed to think that way, didn't he? He took matters into his own hand to get what he desperately wanted, what God had already promised, and was working towards fulfilling. Brown's statement was based on a belief in the power of artificial intelligence. The fact that remains that artificial intelligence is still artificial. It is the result, and it depends on man's ingenuity. It's naive to place our faith in men, in our own ability, when it is God's plan that's being fulfilled. And the pages of Scripture bear it out. He will take the necessary steps to ensure its fulfillment. He sent his own son to a cross at the expense of his life to fulfill the promise. Our struggle for dominance and control so often leads us into turmoil. We find ourselves like Jacob, alone, in the middle of nowhere, alone in the darkness, wondering how in the world did I end up here? I had it all. And in a flash, it seems like I might lose it all. That's what happens when we fail to realize that God always acts in accordance with his covenant, with his plan. And as his people, we need to live in that reality. Lest we find ourselves like Jacob, fleeing everything that we have because of our own sinful desires. You know by now God intervenes in the affairs to, of men to ensure his promises are kept. And he always acts in accordance with these promises. So that is where our focus needs to be. Not on our own desires, on what the word of God tells us God has promised. In verse 12 we find Jacob dreaming. What a dream it was. The sun had set, he's vulnerable, he's sound asleep. That's about as vulnerable as a man can be. It's a picture of weakness. Jacob, the defeated man, on the run, and God shows up when he's at his weakest and most vulnerable. Now, the literary arrangement of the wording in verses 12 and 13 suggests an increasing level of astonishment um, as Jacob begins to see what's going on in this dream. Behold a ladder, and the top of it reaches to heaven, and behold, angels are ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord God himself. It's an increasing level of astonishment. Now this ladder is not like a modern ladder, like we think of as a ladder. It's more like a hill or a mound of dirt, similar to a mountain of earth, you might say. 
And the second thing we notice that these angels are descending and ascending on the ladder, it's a suggestion that their presence on earth, that they, they are present on earth and they have access directly to heaven, back and forth. God's angels tending to the needs of men. Then Jacob sees and hears God himself at the top of the ladder. Imagine what he must have thought. Imagine how he felt. He had just swindled his brother out of everything on his father's deathbed. Now he's fleeing for his life. What would you think if you were in Jacob's shoes? And God appeared. God showed up. And God begins to speak in verse 13. And he says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. Ever had one of those vivid dreams? Really a nightmare? They're so terrifying, so lifelike. Dreams when you or someone you know, usually, is in grave danger. You can see it. You know I've got to do something to help. And you're paralyzed with fear. You can't move. I don't know about you, but for me, that's usually when I wake up. Just in time. All you can do is watch a desperate situation unfold. But instead of judging Jacob, God blessed him. Not because of Jacob's actions, but because of God's promises. Just as he had promised Abraham and Isaac, just like God had promised Jacob's mother, he bestows the covenant, bless, the covenant blessing on Jacob. The Lord God would now be the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He has brought Jacob into the family. And he says, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. The promise that God had made to Abraham and shared with Isaac was now passed on to Jacob. But not through deception, deceit, or the scheming of a man but by the word of God. And God's not done. He adds to the blessing. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Jacob was no longer a slave to his deceitful nature. It didn't disappear but he was no longer a slave to it. He'd been blessed by God and set free from himself. The blessing was truly by God's own hand, all with the promise that God would be with him wherever he went and return him to his home one day to enjoy the blessing, finally and fully. Now, you know that Jacob is the father of the nation of Israel, correct? Did they go through a similar experience? They did, didn't they? They were exiled. In fact, Bruce talked about it, I think, this morning in Sunday school. They're exiled and not just shown the door, shown the door in a very hard way, but with that promise that one day they would return. 
You know, there's a popular old gospel song titled, We Are Climbing Jacob's Ladder. I don't read anywhere in this story where any man is climbing Jacob's ladder. Any other human. That's exactly what the people at Babel tried to do. They were building a tower to heaven to build a heavenly city to make a name for themselves so they would not be scattered. The plan didn't work out too well, did it? God intervened and stopped their plan, and he scattered the people, and he confused their languages. So we're going to see, as we move through this story with Jacob, that it is God who comes to his creatures. It is God through Christ Jesus that opens the gates of heaven to mankind. It is the actions of God to continue to fulfill his covenant promise that allows access through Christ. Man does not demand or gain access simply because they decide to. In the Jacob story, God is presenting the image of a shepherd, if you will, one of presence and one of action. The nation of Israel knew about the words and actions of a good shepherd, and this message was for them. Probably at the time they received this writing, they're in the plains of Moab, not yet in the promised land, about to go in. And God is telling them they're not going to be left to their own resources as they prepare to enter this land. The good shepherd does not abandon the weak and the helpless. This message is for you and I as well. And it's further reinforced by Christ, the promised good shepherd. In Matthew 28, as we read this morning, when he tells the church in the Great Commission, I am always with you, even to the ends of the age. Brothers and sisters, there's no ladder for us to climb. There's no striving of men. It will not bring you one inch closer to heaven. Only the triune God does that. We have to understand that God always acts in accordance with his promises and with his plan. And that's where we need to live. Christ's words in Matthew 28 are our reality today. So we've seen so far, and I hope you're convinced, if you weren't already, that God is committed to his promises. And when we attempt to manipulate that plan, He's going to intervene to ensure the integrity of his word. The question we must ask is how the ancient Israelites and in turn modern Christians to respond to God's promise and to avoid manipulating his word. So we're going to see Jacob's response to God's intervention in a very powerful way, and that's in verses 16 through 22. And we learn that once again, God is acting in accordance with his promises, and our response should include thankfulness and obedience. When Jacob awakes, his first words were, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Followed immediately by, and he was afraid. Jacob did not imagine that God would be in this place that God would show up like he did, and certainly not to blessing. His response of fear was pretty appropriate considering what he'd experienced. 
in the dream and before coming, leaving for Haran. Fear. This is a word that the Bible uses at times to describe a sense of terror. And yet sometimes a sense of adoration. Is that confusing? The, Bible, the word fear represents one of the most complex ideas in the Bible. The most repeated command in Scripture entails some form of do not fear or do not be afraid. Yet the Scriptures teach us over and over that we're to fear the Lord. <laughs> what are we supposed to do with that? Do not fear, fear the Lord. Well, the first thing we need to recognize is in our modern culture, we have an aversion to this word fear. We don't like it. We don't want it. Out of our life. We want it out of our life. Even our modern day Bible translations try to help protect us from that thing, that fear. What did our ESV say this morning? How awesome is this place? The King James Bible which is probably closer to the Hebrew, says, how dreadful is this place? Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> awesome, dreadful, do not fear, fear. Is that not confusing? Well, we're going to look at that word fear a little bit this morning. And scholars define the word fear from the Bible the Bible generally in three ways and the first way is called natural fear and that's like me standing on the edge of the grand canyon of the yellowstone looking over there's something going on inside here hey dummy get back don't get too close there's there's a an emotional response and a physical response going on there that's our instinct kicking in and that's a good thing it's telling us to be fearful of something, someone, or some event. And usually things tied to some kind of danger. The next type of fear is sinful fear. And that's the fear we experience when we know we've done something wrong. That's the kind of fear we have when we're afraid somebody at church is going to find out about my sin. My wife's going to find out about that book I bought. It can go on and on. We can make a list a mile long, couldn't we? Jacob, no doubt, experienced both of these kinds of fear, a natural fear. He's in the presence of God. That's a new thing for him. And he, no doubt, experienced a sinful fear because of what he had done cause him to go on the journey. He knew he was guilty. He knew exactly how he'd stolen his brother's blessing. It's important for us to understand that fear, either natural fear or sinful fear, produces an emotional and sometimes a physical response. Now the third type of fear, it's described as godly fear or holy fear. And notice Jacob's response where I said, many of our translations say, how awesome in this place. Awesome? Really? Just a minute ago, he was afraid. Both naturally and sinfully. Now he says, how awesome is this place? 
I'm not sure about you. Awesome does not sound like an ancient Hebrew word to me. It sounds kind of modern to me. And the modern use of that word usually means something pretty fantastic or great. That would be a modern meaning. But the first known use of this word dates back to only the 16th century. Back to about the time of the Protestant Reformation. And it was something more akin to dreadful or awful. Dreadful is the word the King James uses. So awesome and dreadful Even though at one time they had the same meaning, now they two totally different meanings? How are we supposed to make sense of this? How are we supposed to not be afraid, not fear, and fear the Lord? Well, it turns out that the Hebrew word for fear or afraid had the same root and mean two totally different things. One meaning is found in the negative and the other in the positive. Let me try to explain. In a negative sense, when we're speaking of the two types of fear I've already described, natural and sinful, they both produce negative physical or emotional responses. And we can find plenty of references in the scriptures where people experience that. And yet the Bible commands people to fear him, his people, over a hundred times. It's a, essentially a command. Well, does natural fear fit? Does God really expect us to live in dreadful fear of him? I don't think so. And I hope that's not your idea of what it means to fear the Lord. At least I hope not by the time I get done this morning. Incidentally, many of the times the Bible commands us to fear the Lord, when we look closely and spend time in the word and meditate on the scriptures, we're going to find that the fear of the Lord is closely tied to faith, hope, and love. Now that puts a different light on fear of the Lord, doesn't it? I hope it does. But what about sinful fear? We certainly have a reason to have sinful fear when we come into God's presence, don't we? But is that what God expects from us all the time? Remember, fear has a job to do. And what did I tell you the job is? Repentance. Yes, God wants our repentance. But that was the trap that Luther fell into. He lived in it for years, repenting day and night, minute after minute, climbing stairs, flogging himself, always afraid he forgot to repent of something. And then what happened for Luther? He's teaching through the Psalms at Wittenberg, and he's reading Romans, and he finally stumbles across justification by faith alone. It finally sinks in. The gospel becomes a reality for Luther. Yes, we need to repent. Often and frequently. But we can't live our lives every minute of every day in that feeling of doom. It's not what God wants for us. So let me give us a, a couple of scriptures to look at to get an understanding what this holy fear might look like. We all know the proverb that says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. In Deuteronomy 10, 
And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. Do you see that? The first idea expressed there is fear the Lord. The rest of the commands listed there, I think, are examples of what that looks like. They show us what it looks like. So we can see in just those two scriptures, fearing God involves knowledge or wisdom of his ways, obedience to his ways, and to love him. One more passage from Psalm 147. His delight in, is not in the strength of the horse nor in the pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Now remember, Psalms are Hebrew poetry. And one of the helpful ways to understand Hebrew poetry is to recognize that the next line often is building on the line before it. So in the Psalm, verse 11, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. The very next line, the line that is going to kind of tell us what that means in those who hope in his steadfast love. Faith, hope, and love. The words we use today don't really describe fear the Lord well in the English language. Reverence and awe, they're good words and, and they're true, but they just don't fully do justice to what it means to fear the Lord. So let's go back to Jacob as we start to wrap this up. He further describes what he saw as the house of God, as the gate of heaven. Jacob had seen God in this place, so he erects the stone that he'd used for his head, and he anoints it with oil, and he names the place Bethel, or the house of God. Now, there's a lot I could say about the stone and where it points, but I just don't have time this morning. But I hope you've heard me enough to know somehow Mike's going to take us to Christ in this Old Testament. And that stone is significant, and it's pointing there. This place, Bethel, becomes a significant location in the history of the nation of Israel. It was a place where one could find God. It was a place where one could worship God, a place here on earth. It was the entryway of heaven for man. It's the place where Jacob discovered what it meant to fear the Lord. And as a result of what Jacob sees and hears there, he makes a vow. If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for peace for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Now, at first glance, it kind of seems like Jacob is maybe making a deal with God. You ever done that? God, if you will just. God, if you'll just get me through this. God, if you'll just work in this person's life, I will. I will. I will. Anybody here ever make a deal with God? Nobody? I see smiles. Somebody must have. Now, we know Jacob's a deceiver, but I don't think that's the, cor the correct way to look at 
what's going on here. It'd be easy to do, easy to see it that way, if we'd ever made a deal with God before. But consider this, as Jacob repeats the promises to him, I'm reminded of his initial reaction to the dream. Behold, behold, remember I tell you it's a rising crescendo of adoration, excitement. I think that's what Jacob is doing here as well. If God is going to do this for me, how could I want to do anything else? Look what he's done. How could I want anything else? I don't think he's making a deal with God. I think it's a response. It's the fear of the Lord. It's the correct worshiping response of one of God's people. When they stop and realize what God has done for them. That's how we should see Jacob's word. The response of a worshiper. Someone who has come to understand the fear of the Lord in a positive way. We're going to look at one more example, and then I'm going to close this down. We're going to look at someone from Scripture who is at a very low point in their life, following some very deceitful actions to satisfy their own desires at the expense of others. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, Nathan confronts David over his sin with Bathsheba. And Nathan tells him, God's covered your sin, but the child you fathered with Bathsheba will die. David lay on the floor for a full day on behalf of the child in prayer. And after seven days, the child died as Nathan had stated he would. When David heard the news, the Bible says he arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. I'm not sure about you. I find those words astounding. I've had some mountaintop experiences in my life from God's hand. We all have. Perhaps not on a physical mountain, but we have had experiences when we knew God's presence intimately. And it was far greater than we could ever possibly imagine. God met me most profoundly, however, when life was at its darkest. When I was weak. When I didn't know where to turn next. I was feeling alone and vulnerable during a time of deep personal loss, a time of crushing grief. I was fearful, I was without hope, and I was angry. I was not making good decisions about my life at that time. And God didn't come to me in some dramatic way. I didn't have a mountaintop experience that you write down in the back of your Bible. He came to me in my tears. He came to me in a word from a friend. He came to me in a sermon I heard. He came to me through the prayers of others. He came to me through a letter someone shared. 
He came when I was emotionally at the end of my rope. And he came at the most unexpected moments and in the most unexpected ways. Again and again, he came quietly, picked me up off the floor, not as quickly as King David. I wasn't there. I'm not there yet. But he did lift me from the darkness in my season of despair. In time and through much pain, I came to realize that God always acts in accordance with his covenant promises. Our response to that should include thankfulness and obedience. At that time in my life, I came to understand what it meant for a Christian to fear the Lord my God. The story of Jacob was for the new nation of Israel, and it's for you and me. We're not biblical characters. We're not patriarchs of Israel, but the promises of God are for all his people through Christ. In John's gospel, Jesus comes upon Nathanael and describes him as a true Israelite, one in whom there's no deceit. What do you think he's getting at? That was a direct reference to Jacob, the deceiver. I know that because he follows up with the message about this ladder Jacob saw in his dream. Christ is the ladder. He is the gateway to heaven. He is the connection between heaven and earth. He's the only way for men to enter heaven. He's the stone in the desert in the Old Testament. He's the new temple. We are the stones being built up with the new temple. It's through the true Israel that the blessing has come to the world. It is through Christ that all the nations of the world will be blessed. He will one day. Return us to our Father's house in peace. Fear of the Lord is a virtue. It's tied to faith, hope, and love. And hopefully it leads to piety, praise of God, and some humility. Since one who fears God recognizes that God, not ourself, is the center of the, cons uh, of the cosmos. Remember our proverb, the last thing I'm going to say this morning, the book of Proverbs is a wisdom book. And the Proverbs have much to say about wisdom. <coughs> and it starts with the fear of the Lord, which produces knowledge. Knowledge leads to wisdom. What kind of wisdom? The Apostle Paul tells the church at Corinth, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. From your mountaintops to your lowest points in your life, Christ is there, acting, always interceding on our behalf, because the triune God always acts in accordance with the covenant promises. That is where we need to live our lives, in that reality in the light of the gospel. Pray with me. Almighty and gracious God, thank you for your word. Thank you that in your wisdom you have called each of us here this morning to hear your words. We pray that the words of your scripture will reach deep into our hearts, that your word will strengthen our faith, that your word will cause us to examine our lives and our hearts once again. We pray that through your word we might come to love Christ even more deeply 
and that we might properly learn to fear you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.